Hello and welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, for coming back. First time listeners, always happy to have you on board. Thanks for finding the show and for giving it a shot. Regulars, of course, I've uh, I've I've sucked you into my honey trap and you're stuck here and you're listening to this show religiously, I'm sure, and I thank you for that. Um, but I want to, as always, do my little song and dance for Counterpunch, my little pitch and get out my, uh, you know, my, my panhandling uh, equipment as I ask you, as I beg you. Consider becoming a subscriber to Counterpunch because right now our media and our media world is shrinking very quickly and the, the those platforms that are going to give you a critical left perspective on issues both internationally and domestically dealing with everything from the environment to Trump and creeping fascism and all kinds of other things, that's all in Counterpunch every single day on the website, every single issue of the print magazine. It's a great way to support Counterpunch by getting a subscription to that magazine. So few print publications left in our in our little leftist world, and uh, it's a, I think a, a worthy thing to do to support Counterpunch. So please consider that, or just donating by using the PayPal feature, or calling the uh, Counterpunch office, or finding any other way to do that. Carrier pigeons, I believe, are still in effect, and so forth. So please do consider it. Um, anyway, I want to turn to my guest today. No more shameless self promotion, and uh, I want to talk about very very important subject. I think one that, while it may be on the minds of a lot of people, may not actually be on the lips of enough people. Uh, and um, to have that conversation, I'm very happy to welcome Jason Stanley onto the program. Uh, Jason has a new book on the subject, which we're going to talk about. But uh, before we get to that, I just want to let you know that Jason is a philosophy professor at Yale University. He is the author of numerous books, uh, numerous important books, I would add, including the very, very critical How how Propaganda Works, which won the Prose Award for Philosophy from the Association of American Publishers. He is a frequent contributor to the New York Times, Washington Post, Boston Review, Chronicle of Higher Education, many other publications, and to uh, coming on today to talk about his brand new book, which is out very, very shortly, entitled How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them. Jason Stanley, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Thank you so much, Eric. It's great to be here. I'm a big fan of Counterpunch. Thank you so much for coming on and thank you for writing this book because I think it is absolutely a critical contribution to our national discourse on the subject. And so I want to delve right into it. And obviously, you know, and I, I almost am reticent to even ask this question because it's such a standard question to ask an author. But um, let's just begin because I think it's important. Tell us what drove you to write this book, How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them. Why did you write it? Because I think most Americans are not aware of the the I, the features of fascist ideology and politics that are all around them, and to a large extent have always been always all around them. Because European fascist movements were deeply affected by developments in the United States. They were deeply affected by our history of racism. Uh, the Nuremberg Laws, as my colleague Jim Whitman points out in his book, Hitler's American Model, were based on our anti-miscegenation laws. Uh, the uh, genocide of the native peoples deeply affected Hitler uh, in his thinking about Eastern Europe. Uh, the 1924 Immigration Act is repeatedly praised by Hitler in Mein Kampf, in his second book, repeatedly. So now at where we're at a time where our nation's leaders are praising the 1924 Immigration Act. 
it's a gut check time where we have to look at our history. We have to look at the ways in which good old American uh, history and good old American traditions affected the development of European fascism and understand that it can happen here. Absolutely. I think that's absolutely correct and very well said. And it's it's really important to continue making that point because we do somehow in our maybe in our collective imagination or uh, unconscious or whatever, have this idea that we're so far removed from fascism of, you know, 80 years ago that that it's just this kind of almost a historical relic and that whatever, you know, fascist tendencies we see in the United States today, be it Charlottesville or others, that these are just sort of minor blips, little upsurges, nothing Nothing that necessarily points towards something systemic or institutional, and I think quite the opposite, and it seems that that's kind of what you're arguing. Yeah, I mean, Nancy McLean makes this case in Beneath the Mask of, Behind the Mask of Chivalry. The Ku Klux Klan is deeply affects and is connected to European fascist movements. The Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s. Uh, We're seeing, uh, you know, of course no American fascist would self-describe as a fascist because no American fascist would use some Euro trash word to self-describe their, to describe their own ideology. Fascism is an ultra nationalist movement. So good old American fascism would never be called fascism because it's an Italian word. So what you'd, you know, good old American fascism would come in, you know, American tropes. There, between 1920, what we're now witnessing across the world is a resurgence of something that occurred between 1928 and 1935, universal fascism. There was a universal fascist movement where different countries uh, got together. So fascism is based on ultranationalism. So, you know, we're seeing again this resurgence of ultranationalism. We're seeing again links between Israel, Russia, Hungary, Poland, Turkey, United States, where they're India, where they're linked, where 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 these where certain forces are linked by this national ultranationalist ideology. Now, ultimately, it's not going to work because ultimately these countries have different interests. So, you know, Poland and Russia ultimately are going to come to loggerheads. We're seeing Turkey and the United States coming to loggerheads. Uh, because and this this is what happened before because you know it isn't a really natural property uh, you know each of us thinks we're, we're the best. Um, uh, uh, sorry, uh, that was my my mother who has an unerring instinct for uh, interviews. Um, so uh, so uh, so what we're seeing is uh, what we're seeing is a resurgence of this universal fascist mo- moment. Now, uh, just like then. Uh, we're not going to have people in this movement, in these ultranationalist movements, always identifying with the term fascism. Uh, famously, a Spanish fascist was invited to speak at one of these universal fascist conference, fascism conferences, and he said, "I'm not, I, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not a fascist. I'm Spanish." So, yeah. <laughs> um, I feel like a Wikipedia page might 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 help him out. Uh, right, exactly. <laughs> but that's why that's why there's a resistance to the term fascism because it seems European. And the more nationalist American you are, the more some European word is going to seem foreign and not fitting. But you know, fascism, as I describe in my book, has a particular ideological structure. 
And that ideological structure, when you read my book, you'll see is very familiar to any American. That's absolutely correct, and I and I, I would just say, and we're going to talk more about the book, of course. But one one aspect of the book that I I, I just want to throw out right here from the outset is it's so readable. I mean, it is just written in such a way that it is just the kind of thing that you could give as a gift to anybody who might be interested, even a little interested in the subject, and they'll read through it. And it's a very quick read, and it's a very, I guess you could say, a clean read, which I really appreciate. It's not academics writing for academics. Uh, for other academics kind of thing. It's a really uh, very good book in that in that regard. Uh, but Jason, I want to ask you a little bit about the subtitle of the book because I think it really kind of frames a lot of the discussion uh, at the outset here, the politics of us and them. Can you talk a little bit about that idea of us and them and, in the way that you describe it in the book and how that is in, in some ways a foundational element of fascism? So... To some extent, all politics is us and them. So class politics would be us and them. You know, they they are the rich. We are the working class. But fascist us and them is based around a distinction between us and a nationalist distinction between us and them. Fascist, Fascist us and them is based on the idea that we are members of the chosen nation, where that's defined not in terms of class, of course but in terms of uh, ethnic identity, racial identity, or religious identity, or even perhaps cultural identity. Uh, So we are members of the chosen nation, and they are are invaders, interlopers, you know, threats to our purity of our chosen nation. So that's at the basis of us and them. At the basis of us and them is a doctrine of purity, of ethnic purity, racial purity, national purity that is threatened by foreigners and foreign elements. Absolutely. And 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 again, I think that it's it's sort of it's not just a matter of, you know, the, you know, corruption, uh, it's corruption of the spirit, essentially, that the, the them in this case, whether it's the barbarians at the gates or whether it's, you know, Mexicans, rapists or however it's framed, them are they are here to destroy us through corrupting us. It's not necessarily that they're going to slaughter all of us and, you know, take our land. It's that they're corrupting our society. Purity. So in fascist politics, you're constantly trying to harness certain emotions, the emotion of disgust, the emotion of fear, obviously, fear and panic, disgust, anger and rage. So disgust is a center and nostalgia, nostalgia for a past that never was when members of the chosen nation reigned supreme and and benevolently ruled over others. So you're trying to harness these emotions and the emotion of disgust and fear are central. So the idea is foreigners are making things impure. They're, they're, you know, we had this pure, uh, we had this pure past, these wonderful traditions, and there's this impurity coming in. As Tucker Carlson said recently, uh, I don't like illegal immigrants because I don't like litter. So that's a pure channeling of the fascist impulse, you know, uh, where, where foreigners are literally, they bring dirt with them. So you're trying to reduce in fascist politics, you're trying to reduce politics to a set of basic emotions, reactive emotions, um, disgust. Uh, so you're trying to link non-whites, non-white immigration with disgust. 
You're trying to link it to fear. You're trying to link it to uh, to uh, anxiety that you can't protect your women. And so we see again and again. So at the uh, so these are the tactics you see. You see uh, foreigners uh, associated with uh, with vermin, with snakes. Uh, President Trump uh, has several times read the the poem "The Snake" uh, uh, to uh, in his rallies. Uh, vermin infestations. Uh, so you also, they are always across the world. It's really, this is really remarkable. Uh, they are all the, the men of, uh, of the invaders, the foreigners are always rape threats. Uh, so again and again, and in the Hindu nationalists are always saying Muslims are rape threats and we have to protect our women. Uh, obviously there's a complete panic about, uh, German women and Syrian refugees in Germany, uh, everywhere. Uh, that you know the American history with lynching uh, took that form. So uh, and and they are also in addition to being these dangerous threats to our purity and the sanctity of our women and you know this panic about intermingling. That's why, of course, the Nuremberg laws. Are, you know, when you think about fascism, you have to think, well, why does fascism always centrally involve barring uh, marriage between the hated group and members of the chosen nation. I mean, the Nuremberg laws are the centerpiece of national socialism. Jews can't marry non-Jews. Uh, so, you know, uh, the anti-miscegenation laws in the United States, whites and blacks can't marry. So <laughs> those are central because they infect us. Um, and then of course, they are always lazy. That's the other trope. Yeah, and it's also infused with a kind of an economic anxiety that in some senses is manufactured and in some senses is rooted in something uh, authentic. And and uh, whether it was in the case of Germany, there was it, it wasn't simply that the Jews uh, are corrupting the pure German bloodlines and whatnot. It is also that the Jews have 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 essentially taken control of our capital and we don't want them intermingling with our, you know, and sucking off our wealth in the parasitical way that they do. Or in the case of, say, uh, immigrants from Latin America or what have you, that they're coming in, they're stealing our jobs, they're taking away our opportunities, they're taking away that which makes America great and that which has always made America great, the quote unquote land of opportunity. But unfortunately, it's just not an opportunity for us white folks anymore. Yes. So it's the other element of the us, fascist us versus them. One element is that they are criminals. They're intermingling with our women. They're, they're, they're rape threats or even just they're just threats just to marry our women, uh, quote, our women, unquote. Uh, the other element is they are lazy parasites sucking off the economic well-being of the nation. So you find this again and again. I was surprised to see how close internationally these tropes are. In every country, they are lazy. They're taking state money for nothing. Uh, you know, they, uh, so you find again and again, so in Nazi literature, banks, banking is just thievery. And Jews are living off, Jew, Jews are supposedly living off the interest, which is not real work, of hardworking Germans. And so they should be forced to work to teach them a work ethic. And this is what you find in the United States directed against black Americans, has always been direct. We're gonna, we're gonna force them to work for free 
to give them a work ethic, you know, because they're living off the state. And it doesn't matter what the state, uh, the state, uh, you know, the state can mean the institution that defends banks so they take your interest, or the state can mean social, you know, food stamps or uh, uh, aid, uh, aid to families with dependent children. The state can mean uh, the state can mean money for arts programs that Hitler rails against. He's like, look, the state is supporting degenerate art. So the idea is that there are hardworking people in the rural areas and their money is being, their taxpayer money is being stolen to support the undeserved. And that is a uniform feature of fascist politics. And it's a familiar, longstanding feature of right-wing American politics. Absolutely. And and you mentioned uh, a longstanding feature of right-wing American politics. One, one, I guess we could say, expression of that fascist tendency of the far right in the United States is what we would call uh, the, the, the far right conspiracists, conspiracists, right? So building off of some of these Nazi uh, points that you made about how they viewed Jews in relation to banking, that's where you fold in these, the Rothschilds run the world and Illuminati and all of these other various tropes where, you know, the Rothschilds secretly with the Warburgs control both international communism and also international capitalism. This this kind of grand conspiracy narrative is very much a feature of fascism internationally. Well, so two points there, not just a there's the point about conspiracy thinking, which is which is common both to fascism and say and other forms of authoritarianism like Stalinism. Uh, but to the particular form of conspiracy thinking in fascism, which is that, you know, global capitalism and and communism and Marxism and communism are two sides of the same coin. You know, the globalists, be they the Marxists who control the the Hollywood and the universities or uh, are somehow the same as the global capitalists. Um, well, this is something we're hearing from the White House. <laughs> you know, we're hearing the protocols of the elders of Zion, the specific anti-globalist conspiracy theories that animated the Nazis are right now coming from Stephen Miller and members of the White House. <laughs> so, you know, uh, Bannon, you know, uh, no longer in the White House, but these are, you know, uh, Mr. Trump, we are getting uh, the actual specific conspiracy theories that the media is die Lugenpresse, that uh, that the media is controlled. The birtherism was aimed this way. The idea birtherism, when Mr. Trump uh, introduced birtherism into the may helped introduce birtherism into the mainstream media on Fox News, he did it in the classic way that, uh, for example, you saw with Nazi propaganda. The idea was back then in Germany, that the Jews controlled the media and you could tell because they didn't report on the fact that the Jews controlled the media. So that's the trap that conspiracy theories set. The idea is, you know, the media is under control by a shadowy cabal and you can tell this because the media doesn't report that it's under control by a shadowy cabal. And it's a trap because either the media reports this, in which case they support the conspiracy theory, giving it more credence, or they don't support it, in which case they're represented as being behind the shadowy cabal. And you saw Mr. Trump do this exactly in his interview with, with Fox News in 2012. He said, CNN refuses to report on, on, birth, on birtherism, 
on th that that Obama's born on Ken in Kenya or even discuss it. And you can tell. And that means that they're controlled by Obama. Right. And, and, and in fact, I think birtherism was an expression of another point that, that you've already made here in our conversation, that uh, for the far right, uh, you know, the white nationalist, white supremacist uh, uh, elements of their society, which is in many ways much of the mainstream nowadays, um, for them, Obama didn't represent a corporate neoliberal imperialist like he did for me and for many other lefties who opposed him. Rather, Obama meant a, 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 a fraud a corruption, a, an impurity, something that couldn't possibly be authentic. And so it's, it's, it's not us that have a problem. It's obviously that Obama has fooled us. He is in many ways like some kind of a covert agent, whether of the Muslim Brotherhood or any number of other, uh, you know, examples that, that he was an impurity that needed to be purified. Exactly. So you find this throughout America. That's exactly, that's exactly right. It's uh, that Obama was an impurity. Obama was a corruption for for uh, the white supremacist attitude. You find this dating back as a meme throughout American history. W.E.B. Du Bois and Black Reconstruction. Uh, he 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 points out points out he he destroys the the then prevailing view that Reconstruction ended because black politicians were corrupt, and he clearly states that. Uh, what corruption meant in Ameri in this presentation of American, quote, history, unquote, was that for the first time ever, millions of black Americans were free to govern their own destiny by the ballot box. And so that's what corruption meant. And, and that's what corruption means in fascist politics. The Nazis were the most corrupt administration ever. I mean, they stole and they stole. They uh, they broke every imaginable imaginable law. They were, uh, for for the most part, just right out of prison criminals, mobsters, and yet they ran an anti-corruption campaign. As Kate Mann points out in her book Down Girl, uh, you know, Kate Mann emphasizes uh, how is it that that Mr. Trump was able to run an anti-corruption campaign against Hillary Clinton, and Mann points out that that's because what anti-corruption there means is corruption of the traditional order, which is, uh, which would be in this case, women leading a country. Yeah, and we find we on the left find ourselves in this very unenviable position in situations like that, where we absolutely one hundred percent agree that Hillary Clinton is corrupt, and she has a long track record of that. And many of us have been writing about it and talking about it for a long time. I mean, I got into I got into politics around uh, activism around the Iraq War, and from that moment to this moment, I mean, everything I've ever known about Hillary Clinton has been either corrupt or supporting uh, the military-industrial complex or what have you. But that is not what the Trumpist, you know, the Trumpist right was really concerned about with regard to Hillary Clinton. They weren't necessarily worried about, the, you know, Hillary's uh, horrendous policy vis-a-vis -vis Honduras and everything that that created. They were worried about the corruption of uh, traditional institutions and all of these other aspects of uh, what they, their conception of America that Hillary in some senses embodied, uh, you know, the opposite of. It's a very weird place that leftists find ourselves in where we do agree with the critiques, but for all different reasons. Right. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think Mann is absolutely right that the that the uh, 
that what was meant by corruption was in particular corruption of the patriarchy. And she points out that this happened in an Australian election with a, with a female Australian candidate who's also regularly accused of being corrupt. Um, and I agree with your, so I meant, I think it, in this case it meant corruption of the patriarchy. Uh, the, uh, the, I agree that, you know, I, I was caught in this because I published critiquing Clinton during the primary for corruption. And I think it's best to avoid the use of that term nowadays uh, because it's it's a term that is freighted and loaded in all sorts of ways. And the more I look at fascist campaigns, the more all fascist campaigns take the form of anti-corruption campaigns. And corruption always means this other thing. So it's a word that has a social meaning that should be abandoned. I mean, I think that Hillary Clinton is wrong on a lot of policies, and I will use that expression. She's wrong. I think she's convinced she's right. Uh, and I'm convinced she's wrong. I don't think corruption, I no longer think corruption is the right word. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, it was, it was very difficult for us leftists. Uh, I was very critical of, I've been very critical of Clinton, of, of Clinton and, uh, President Obama, uh, for their policies. Uh, but you know, the social meaning of the term corrupt has been corrupted. <laughs> I, I couldn't agree more, and I think it's an important point, and anybody who's following uh, European politics understands that every fascist movement or quote-unquote far-right, quote-unquote ultra-nationalist, and every other term you like to use other than fascism, uh, these movements are all rooted around anti-corruption. I mean, if you look at the rise of Salvini in Italy, uh, coming out of the Liga Nord and the, the, the League Party, which is now dominating in Italian politics, I mean, it's all anti-corruption. The Five Star Movement, all anti-corruption. If you look at Le Pen, in France, anti-corruption, yep. Brexit, anti-corruption. I mean, all of these anti-corruption is is one of the cornerstones. Yep, that's that is the focus of chapter two of my book. Uh, it's just it was it surprised me to be honest. And anti-corruption was why uh, Reconstruction was rolled back in the United States. The KKK uh, represented itself as anti-corruption. You know, and it all all what it all meant was. Uh, uh, you know, corruption of the patriarchy, corruption of racial purity. So, right, corruption of the traditional order, and that's what we're corruption. and that's what we're here to defend. Yeah, that's the idea. So, um, before we go to break, I want to ask you about one other one other uh, subject here that I think is really important um, in regard to understanding, I guess, some of the foundational uh, elements of fascism, and that is uh, the mythic past, as you call it, or uh, mythology, mythologizing both the actual past, but also this very interesting uh, association with mythology and and mythical figures and a and a real mythical past. So. Can you talk about both a nostalgia for a mythical past, but also mythology and the role that that plays? Yeah, so we're having an interesting moment here. Well, interesting is an interesting word here. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but, you know, you're finding a lot of alt-right activity around medieval studies in the United States right now. So there was a brouhaha recently about uh, medieval studies, uh, you know, um, you know, uh, some scholars were talking about like why is medieval studies so white and the alt-right attacked them uh, And this is something you found in Nazi Germany as well because suddenly medieval studies became this focus of attention Medieval studies was the center of of society and politics and they were feted at the highest levels because you know 
myths of great, the greatness, white greatness, um, so uh, become central at these times. And so it's central, it, it, all fascist movements hearken back to a, uh, a supposedly mythic, uh, well, to a, to a supposed past where the, the nation ruled supreme and everything was wonderful and the traditions that, you, that, that now are just alive in the countrysides uh, were, were the traditions of the nation and the members of the nation uh, uh, were, were, the men were great warriors, the women stayed at home and raised the next generation. And you find this just everywhere. So uh, in, uh, it was very explicit. Mussolini's very explicit about it. Uh, he talks about, you know, the mythic past will be the foundation for the future. Uh, Alfred Rosenberg, the Nazi ideologist, was very specific about it. He's like, we, we're going to have a myth of our past that will guide the formation of the future to return us to the great days of Germany of yore. So whenever you find politicians talking about, say, making a country great again, returning a country to its greatness, that's fascist politics. That's uh you know, there are very different myths that go along with other ideologies, anti-freedom ideologies. For instance, certain kinds of totalitarian uh, communism can be mythologizing a future, a utopian future. But, uh, but the mythic past, uh, in the past, what you're trying to do in fascism is you're trying to appeal to the emotion of nostalgia and link it up to a past that never was. And the structure of that past reflects the authoritarian values of fascist ideology, patriarchy, purity, uh, and hierarchy. And you'll note, and you'll note, as I did uh, in a in a piece I wrote just a couple of weeks after the election uh, that was entitled "Donald Trump and the Triumph of White Identity Politics," um, that you have not just that common thread in terms of the discourse, it's actually expressed in the very slogans of these various movements. Obviously, Trump, make America great again. Look at Brexit. The slogan for Brexit was take back control, right? right. It, 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 which which in, in itself not only implies the nostalgia factor, the taking back, but it implies ownership. It implies that there, that ownership of the land, or rather ownership of the nation and ownership of the society, that that has been taken away and that it needs to be taken back and restored to its proper order, that the, that the ownership is, um, for lack of a better word, justice. Exactly. That justice means hierarchy now. Justice means the hierarchy where the traditional group is at the top and runs things. Uh, an, another example, uh, in Hungary's 2011 fundamental law, the new constitution brought in by Orban, it's, it, the, begin, the prologue or the, the preamble says, uh, this constitution will allow the young people of, of Hungary to make Hungary great again. Well, and, and the interesting thing about Hungary, and we're well overdue for a break here, but I just want to make this point. The interesting thing about Hungary is that you essentially have like a coalition developed there where Orban and the government is essentially of the far right, but they're almost center right within the right politics of Hungary because there is a full-blown Nazi party called the Jabbik Party in Hungary that is in many ways essentially in a sort of coalition with Orban. So the, 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 the fascist governance in Hungary is sort of this multifaceted thing. 
Yeah, I mean, that is actually quite, one more example, Turkey, Erdogan in Turkey is always hearkening back to the Ottoman Empire. So, uh, so but one point, important point about Hungary, but I, I think Hungary, what's happening in Hungary is similar to what's happening here and what happens really everywhere. There is a synergy between the right-wing party, or it's also happening in Austria, where uh, Sebastian Kurz, the current far-right uh, minister is not uh, prime minister is not in uh, in FPO in the neo-Nazi Austrian party. All of uh, but is channeling their policies. What all what happens is that the extreme right is always used as a foil. So the people in Charlottesville are always used as a foil. People will say, "No, we're not them. Uh, we're the center right." And so there's this long-standing synergy between the fascist politicians who get into power and the, you know, as it were, thugs on the street that, that provide the kind of, uh, of scare tactics. Uh, so, or the extreme or the explicitly extreme parties. So what happens and what's happening in Hungary, what's happened in Hungary, what's happened in Austria is that you have the far right policies and the far and what's happening in the United States is that you have the far right policies, you have the far, far implemented at the highest level, but then it's being implemented by people who wear suits and the people who wear suits are like, well, look, we're not those guys. Those are those those are the real fascists. That's absolutely correct. All right, uh, we got to take a break. On the other side of the break, a lot more to discuss with Jason Stanley. Again, the book, How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them. Uh, when does it come out exactly? Tuesday, September 4th. Beautiful. So by the time you guys are hearing this, it will probably be out. Well, actually, you'll probably be hearing it the day that this book drops. So make sure that you uh, get it. I, I believe it'll be available anywhere books are sold, essentially, right? Yes. Okay, very good. All right, um, on the other side of the break, we'll continue with Jason Stanley, Counterpunch Radio. We'll be right back.
we're back here on Counterpunch Radio. Um, so, Jason, we're we're talking about these different elements of fascism that you identify in the book, and I and I, I want to just also commend you. I mentioned in the first half of the conversation that I thought it was a real achievement to make this such an eminently readable book because it's so important. It's a it's almost a primer for a lot of people, whether they are in academia or whether they're just you know working in whatever field they work in. Regular ordinary people need to understand these concepts. So I really appreciate that aspect of the book. And I also really like the way that it is organized and the way that the chapters are organized thematically, because it is in some senses, I know I, I don't mean to sound, you know, in, in negative about it, because I think this is a positive. It's almost a checklist, you know, and you go through it and you're like, okay, yes, that element, that element, that element. And you begin to see how close we really are here on the precipice. So um, I want to focus on one of the, one of the subjects of, of one of the chapters, because it is so dominant in our discourse today. You called it unreality. Of course, the term that we hear a lot today is fake news uh, or, you know, alternative facts or whatever you want to call it. Tell us about unreality and, and how that fits into the fascist framework and how it's expressing itself today. So all of these features that I discuss in the book are linked together. For instance, for instance, uh, one of the chapters is called hierarchy, the idea that men are ranked ahead of women that whites are ranked ahead of blacks, that you know Christians are ranked ahead of non-Christians. So these are uh, uh, these are uh, are th these are linked. Like hierarchy and unreality are linked uh, because hierarchy is a lie. It's a lie that that some groups are better than other groups. Uh, we all suck to pretty much the same degree. And so, uh, so when you're, when you believe that your group is better than other groups, you've accepted a lie. Uh, economic inequality creates unreality because anyone born to great wealth, uh, the vast majority of people who think they're born to, who are born to great wealth think they deserve that wealth. And that's a lie. And so economic unre great economic inequality creates the conditions for fascism. Because when you create the conditions for illusion, you create the conditions for fascism, which which is a truth destroying doctrine. So I'm going to get to unreality in a moment, but I just want folks to realize that all of these elements are intermingled, like take the mythic past. That's more unreality. When you buy the idea that America in the past was purely great with no bad, bad aspects to its history. You've bought into a monstrous lie that includes, includes slavery. It includes, uh, it includes Vietnam, terrible wars. Uh, it, it, it includes massive injustice. So, so all of these chapters, unreality is really a part of all of them. You know, all of the myths that allow you to, to uh, tell yourself a story of your group's grandiosity, they're all lies, and so they all feed into unreality. But so unreality is at the core uh, of everything. Uh, so of all the other aspects as well. So, but uh, now fascism has power as its uh, fundamental power and loyalty as its fundamental values. Uh, liberal democracy has uh, truth as a fundamental value. It is liberty and equality, but liberty and equality require truth. Equality requires the capacity to speak truth to power. Uh, otherwise, you know, two people with different levels of wealth are not politically equal. And 
uh, and liberty, well, if you if your actions are guided by a tissue of propaganda, then you're not acting freely. Nobody thinks the citizens of North Korea are acting freely. They've been lied to. So liberty and equality presuppose truth. So if you're going to destroy liberal democracy, you need to destroy truth. And unreality is the campaign against truth. Unreality is the 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 campaign tactics fascist politicians use to destroy our connection to truth, to make us think that actually, you know, uh, you know, there is no truth uh, or, you know, whatever that, per, you know, or we could never have access to the truth and we just have to like side with power. So the tactics that are now familiar to Americans are massive conspiracy thinking is one. Uh, there are also novel tactics. There are novel tactics that you find, say, with RT, as I discuss in the chapter. Uh, you know, when you spread, when you, when you, when news talks about everything, including like uh, very, very improbable, bizarre, uh, you know, paranoid conspiracy theories, then people don't know what to believe anymore. And so, what you find on RT is you find a massive discussion of everything. So you find some good people talking good politics, politics that I agree with, but you also find Nazis, <laughs> you know? And so it's, they have everybody. <laughs> and when you have that cacophony of voices, you're kind of breaking down our, our connection to reality. And as Michael, the philosopher Michael Lynch has argued in the internet of everything, uh, the internet has this deleterious effect on on truth uh, because you know it's hard to figure out w in the cacophony uh, what's evidence-based and what's not so what we have is we have a kind of uh, massive assault on our connection to reality and when you replace reality with unreality well then people don't know what to believe anymore then people and then they fasten on to just identity then it's just my group versus your group well, they, they, they fasten on to identity and, they, and, and that sort of a tribalistic kind of uh, fallback position, and I agree with that. But they also, um, they essentially create a situation where your understanding of the actual world, the material world, the reality that you live on, your understanding of it becomes akin to your understanding of God. In other words, it becomes something, a matter of faith. Who do you believe in? Well, I believe Alex Jones is right. Well, I believe that Donald Trump is right. Well, I believe that CNN is right, or whatever it may be. In other words, that 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 you that nothing is really knowable. Everything is based on belief. So there's a chapter in Victor Klemper's The Language of the Third Reich called "I Believe in Him," and uh, and the chapter the chapter uh, I think it begins. Or in the middle of the chapter, right in the middle of the chapter, he discusses uh, walking in the woods in Pfaffenhofen uh, in early 1945. Uh, he was fleeing Bavaria, uh, and he 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 runs into a soldier uh, who's missing uh, his left arm. The left sleeve of his tunic hung empty by his side, and uh, it's April 1945. The Russians are just outside of Berlin. I mean, Germany has clearly lost the war. And, uh, and he says to the soldier, uh, well, what do you think about this situation, that the war is lost? 
and uh, and this and the soldier says, "You mustn't say that. Just wait and see what happens in a fortnight." And Klemperer responds, "How is a fortnight going to change anything?" And the soldier says, "It's the Führer's birthday." Uh, the Führer lured the Red Army into Germany to crush them here. He has never lied to us. And, you know, this is after 12 years of being consistently lied to by the greatest liar in history. And a German soldier, young German soldier, who's already lost an arm to this crazy madness, uh, still says, I believe in him. So one thing that worries me, one thing that I hear people say is that when Mr. Trump's supporters realize they're being uh, taken for a ride, when they don't get the material gains that they expect, they're going to abandon him. Now, that is fantasy. That is not how this politics works. This politics does not work by material gain. It's a politics of identity. It's a politics of tribe and it's a politics of loyalty. That's why fascism replaces truth by loyalty. That's why there are these links between, that's why we're constantly talking about mafias and mobs. Arendt talks about this. Arendt says the principle of fascism is, you know, is mafiosa culture, you know, which we see today with the, with the forces surrounding Mr. Trump, uh, because in, uh, you know, it's loyalty and the mafia is an organization where loyalty is the principal thing, not truth. And so what you find when fascist mentality takes over is people think in terms of loyalty, they no longer are connected to reality. And that's why you can starve people, you can send them to pointless wars where they lose their arms, and they will still believe. One of the critical uh, aspects, I think, that uh, uh, that uh, Trump was able to exploit, and in some senses it's captured in Make America Great Again, which actually, in my opinion, may end up going down as one of the great political slogans, most effective political slogans in U.S. history, or recent history, certainly, even though he stole it, but that's whatever. Um that there is this idea, and what I've called in, in my own writing, shared oppression or collective oppression, right? The idea the idea that those members of a group, a, a group that is dominant in society, in every aspect of society, that they, are, that they are made victims, and they're made victims by changes, whether those are simple demographic changes or economic changes or any other kind of changes, changes to the society have victimized the dominant class, the dominant group. And in this case, of course, it would be white Christian America. Uh, and that, that we see this over and over again. Fox News is a perfect example. The war on Christmas, the war on Christians, the war on white people, over and over again. I mean, this is literally Tucker Carlson's show every night at this point, you know. Um, and and uh, I've, now I can't remember. I quoted it in, in, in the article that I referenced. I can't remember who came up with it. But the academic who came up with um, or was writing about the idea of entitativity, right? This is a really interesting idea wherein the members of a group that do not actually share many of the common traits that would make a group begin to see themselves as part of a collective whole. In other words, in, in, in the United States, there has never been white America, not in a, in a contiguous sense. I mean, in an abstract sense, there was, but never in a real sense. And yet Donald Trump has managed to create this sort of idea that white 
white people are in it together, that white people are targeted, that white people share a common oppression, right? And I think that this is a very uh, dangerous and very sinister aspect of what Trump has done, and this is only going to continue growing. And you talk about it in the book uh, under the broad heading of victimhood. Can you talk about the importance of victimhood and shared oppression in fascist mythmaking and in fascist politics? Yeah, so it's if you read Mein Kampf, a book I teach regularly in my spring propaganda class at Yale, you find repeatedly this focus on replacing people's connection to class with by a connection to race. So he rails against trade unions because they tear the nation apart. They be, and what he means by that is that they, you know, People should be unified on the basis of a national identity, not in a class identity. So uh, this, of course, our the history of our own nation, Du Bois's notion of the psychological wages of whiteness, uh, wealthy whites, the planter class were able, were, were able to lure poor whites in to identify with them rather than their fellow class participants, poor black Americans, by shared whiteness. And, you know, sh so you find... Hitler repeat saying, you know, we have to create a national state, which is a state based around the sentiment of a shared Aryan identity. And that's how we forge a state. And there are, you know, the, the, the study of nationalism in the 19th century, like this was, this is an old, this is an idea that sort of philosophers developed in the 19th century that you create this shared national identity, but when it's, uh, uh sort of artificially, uh, but you know, what you do in fascist movements is you first you 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 create this myth that in the past this shared identity was the basis of greatness. And it's greatness that's been lost by the attack by by cosmopolitanism that that undermines these traditions, that makes you feel guilty for identifying with this with this uh, fictional identity <laughs> um, that makes you feel guilty for connecting to these mostly fictional traditions <laughs> and uh and then uh and then you then you whip people up hitler just whips people up into a frenzy he's like the jews are behind liberalism the liberalism is trying to make trying to undermine the uh, the, the make you forget the greatness of your national identity uh, this greatness will be lost your children will forget it your children will have no connection to the greatness of Germany. They'll be sucked in by this degeneracy. They'll be they'll think that their Aryan identity is no is is no more great and no no more important than Jewish identity or Polish identity and or Slavic identity. Uh, and 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 you he whips his audience up into this feeling of mourning uh, that that you know. The people will forget the greatness of these traditions and this identity. And this is exactly the politics we're seeing today. Indeed. I, I really think that the parallels are quite uh, chilling. And, and I think that anybody who tries to minimize just how many parallels there are, I think, is doing a tremendous disservice. Now, um, one one aspect of this that, uh, that that we're facing now that I would just like to get your comment on, and this is kind of going a little bit outside of the book, but one of the one of the uh, one of the 
concepts that was in many ways, I think, uh, central in selling Nazi ideology to the German people was the feeling of betrayal, right? The, the, the stab in the back that, you know, that the great calamity of World War One was brought on Germany. It was foisted on the German people, not by the leadership, but rather by the communists and the Jews who destroyed the country by selling us out, selling us out at Versailles, selling us out over and over again to international finance and on and on and on. In other words, that, that part of the way that they created a shared identity was in a shared victimization by a particular group, and that victimization took the form of betrayal. And I see that a lot of the elements of Trumpism are playing on this idea of betrayal, betrayal of the country, betra- uh, you know, being, you know, while Trump is accused of being a traitor by, you know, the liberal media or whatever, the Trumpists see the real traitors as the liberals, the multiculturalists, the political correct, you know, language police and all of these other people. They're the real traitors, right? It's straight out of the protocols of the elders of Zion. What we're hearing all the time, the attack on liberals, the, I mean, that's in the protocols of the elders of Zion. Uh, the protocols of the elders of Zion say that liberalism is a Jewish plot to undermine the nation. You know, it's the raging against liberals, the raging against communism, the raging against globalism. This is protocols of the elders of Zion. Now, you know, you don't need Jews to be, you know, behind the plot. (laughs) You can just say there are some people who are pushing feminism, liberalism, pushing equality, seeking to displace us seeking to, in the words of the Charlottesville marchers, replace us. Right, but they have, but they have the, the in in some senses they do have the 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 same concept, although it's through the media, you know, through the intermediary of the archetype. And typically today, the archetype is Soros, George Soros, right. the Jewish puppet master who pulls the strings behind all of these things and funds all of the sides, all of the movements, etc. Absolutely, but the narrative now is complicated, more complicated, because Hitler, of course, did not. Uh, Hitler's anti-Semitism was not anti about Israel because Israel didn't exist back then. But now we have a nationalist Jewish state, which after the nation state law, recent nation state law, you know, an explicitly nationalist Jewish state. And so we have a ultra right nationalist Jewish movement on the scene and they are linking with these other ultra nationalist movements. So that complicates Absolutely. the narrative. Because, well, I, it, in, yeah. in, in one sense, I'm sorry, I don't mean to cut you off, but in one sense it complicates it. In another sense, I think it makes it even more clear, the distinctions, because here we're, we're talking about fascists who obviously they don't like Jews exactly, but Richard Spencer is on the record as saying how much he admires Israel, Israel in, for all of the worst things that Israel does, the apartheid laws and the the kind of the segregation element of it, the, the ethnic nationalist, ethno-supremacist nature of uh, contemporary Israel. That is what the the fascists of the alt-right and the far-right, that's what they identify with. And conversely, you know, on the on the other side, that's what the, the, the fascists in Israel really identify with, with the far-right in the U.S. Chapter 29 of Victor Klemper's The Language of the Third Reich is called Zion. And it's a comparison of the ideology of Theodor Herzl with national socialism, the ultra-nationalism at the basis. He's clear that 
you know, there's no direct comparison. But his point is that they're both illiberal doctrines. I mean, I think that there is possibly liberal Zionism and it's been corrupted. So I'm not going to fully. But uh, but there's no there's part of the point of I mean, especially the ultra right in Israel. Uh, the, the point is to sort of say, no, we don't fit that that model that Hitler is opposed to. Uh, we're not those cosmopolitan globalists spreading liberalism and feminism. We're nationalists we're with our own blood and soil. And so, of course, there are links between the Israeli right and uh, and uh, the right wing, the ultra right wing movements in other countries there are clear links between uh, the Freiheitliche Partei Österreich, which is the descendant of the Austrian Nazi party and the Israeli right, the settler movement. They 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 are constantly praising them. The far right across the, uh, I, I was at an Alternative for Deutschland march in Berlin and uh, the far right uh, party in Germany and I saw Israeli flags. Yeah, I, it's 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 not uncommon now and it's, uh, it's really incredible. All right, we, we got to wrap up here uh, since, uh, you know, we, we, we both got things to do, I'm sure. Um, but I want to just ask you, uh, you know, in, in, in closing here, um, I've written about this and I don't know that anybody else has, frankly. I, you know, I'm not trying to make myself into anything other than I want to get your opinion on this. My fear in all of this is not Donald Trump. My fear is Trumpism. The fact that Donald Trump is a limited time quantity, he will leave the political scene, whether he's forced to resign because of all of the scandals and an impending, you know, indictment, whether he runs and loses or whatever, he's going to leave. The movement is not, and it's going to look for another leader and it's going to get more extreme. Do you see that that's the trajectory in the United States? Yeah, I think Trump will be out after three terms and after Ivanka's three terms. We might have another leader. Uh, no, <laughs> just, just kidding. <laughs> but uh, the uh, the uh, I don't know if I'm kidding. But uh, yeah, but, I, I don't know either, and that's why I'm laughing. But I'm on mute. <laughs> right. So uh, so uh, so you know, I mean, will Ivanka Trump be our first female president? Uh, I wouldn't. I, it's not something that I think is a uh, in, incredible possibility. Uh, impossibility. Um, so uh, so. Uh, I, you know, I think uh, Trumpism is uh, speaks to the very problematic elements in, in American history. We the, it's out of the bottle now. We have explicit, uh, explicit, uh, you know, people are explicitly white supremacist. So uh, so all of that is out. We don't know uh, what that means. Um Friends on the left will say, well, at least people aren't, there's no hypocrisy anymore. It's clear. But, you know, now you can say things you, you have, you have the Republican party, uh, has, you know, Chris Kobach is the Republican candidate for governor of Kansas. His entire political career is based upon a conspiracy theory. Every bit as wild as the protocols of the elders of Zion, that there's a plot of immig- of, for for immig- illegal immigrants to be voting, and they've corrupted our elections. Uh, it's every bit as fantastical as the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. He won the Republican primary in Kansas simply on that. Um, Brian Kemp in Georgia, his 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 political record is he's a master of voter suppression. So we now have open 
uh, Republican candidates for major office who, whose entire political platform is to roll back multi-ethnic democracy. Um, so, uh, you know, it's on right now. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, we have, and this is America's history. Uh, and, you know, to give credit to Trump, he said he was going to roll back the clock and make America great again. Yeah, and he's going to run a campaign, a re-election campaign under the slogan, Promises Made, Promises Kept. So, you know. Give the man credit. (laughs) No, I will not. Um, Okay, anyway, uh, we're going to have to end it there. But again, I could not recommend the book more highly, How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them by Jason Stanley. Uh, Pick up the book. Uh, It'll be available once you're listening to this podcast. Also, I I also highly recommend the other book, How Propaganda Works, a very, very important book as well. Jason Stanley, thanks so much for coming on Counterpunch Radio. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Eric. Great to talk and to you. And l- listeners, as always, thank you so much, and thank you for continuing to support the show. I'll speak with you again next week.